that you can toggle and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. I need a volunteer to read verses 35 and 36 of 1 Kings 20. 35 and 36. Seems a little harsh, right? Just right off the bat. I, I don't, you know, not second guessing or anything, just saying it seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Uh, it does. Uh, kind of an interesting story, though, because there's a few things in it. Uh, if you need to read some kind of background on it, you can go uh, to the verses before and the verses after, and they'll provide you with a little more context as to what's going on and why this story is in here, but. Uh, basically, what you see happening here is they're setting up a prophetic message to rebuke the king. Uh, these are prophets. They're part of a school of prophets that existed during that time. Ahab was the king. And as we've discussed Ahab in the past, Ahab was a wicked king. He was somebody that, and maybe wicked's a, a harsh word, but I mean, he was just weak. And because he was weak, he was under the influence of other people. And so, mainly under the influence of his wife, Jezebel, he wanted to lead the people uh, of the kingdom, people of Israel, into idolatry, which she did uh, through Ahab. And so his weakness resulted in problems for the nation. His weakness resulted in issues that... Uh, the nation continued to face, and it had to do with the flaw that was in him. And so the prophets, they were upset because, uh, and God had led them, because Ahab had made a decision to let a king go, Ben-Hadad, I believe the guy's name was, and this all had to do with uh, God providing a miraculous defeat of the enemy, Israel chasing the enemy, uh, bringing them to defeat, and the king had been captured, and Ahab had decided to let him go. But again, that points to, and, and this is something that we'll get to in a moment, but it points to a weakness in him as a leader of a nation. Uh, it's one thing to make a decision to show mercy as an individual. It's another thing when your gift costs other people. All right, those are two different things. It's, it's one thing for you to be generous from your own resources. It's another thing when you're generous from other people's resources. Do you see a difference in those two things? Okay. So the issue had become, because of his position as king, he wasn't being generous just with his own resources. He was being generous with the resources of the nation. And so the prophets had something to say about that. And that's what we see happening here. And so Ahab... I was unwilling to change his mind. He was uh, 
prideful, uh, rich, powerful, stubborn. And so the company of the prophets had been raised up to uh, speak to the nation. Now, you think about the prophets during this time. You had Elijah, who in 1 Kings chapter 17, had come onto the scene out of nowhere. Uh, Gilead is where he was from. And he immediately went to the king and began to prophesy to him. And so from the time of Elijah, and then after Elijah, there's Elisha. And then all during this time, there's these, this company, the school of the prophets that existed. And so God would speak to the people through them. He would speak to leadership through them. He'd speak to the king through them. And, and I mean, Elijah had a direct voice into the king's life. And Elisha would also have a direct voice into the king's life. And there would be prophets that would come after Elijah and Elisha, prophets that were part of the school uh, of the prophets, part of this company, that would continue to have a direct word into the king's life, whoever the king might be. And that was just something that was a part of their culture. It was a part of who they were. It was a part of them being what we would call a theocracy. In other words, like, you know, we're a democrat, republic, democracy in a sense. And because of that, we, that's the people rule. But Israel wasn't set up that way back then. They were set up as a theocracy. In other words, theoretically, God ruled the country. And the way that he ruled the country was through the leadership of the king. And so the problem that happened, the problem that did happen, was that if you had a king that was weak or easily influenced or that was just evil, then the rule and reign of God really wasn't taking place anymore through him. He was just ruling and reigning and do his own thing, whether it be his own selfishness or whether it be some kind of personal gain or whatever it would be or just as a, a personal flaw and he was weak and he didn't have the... He, he couldn't stand up to the people that were around him to say no to certain things and to make different decisions. But whatever the case might be, he was directly, and, and I want you to think about him as being a conduit between God and how the nation would actually be ruled. So in a theocracy, he was the in-between. And when your in-between was messed up, or your in-between was evil, or your in-between was personally flawed or weak in the way that he was that really hindered God's rule and reign over the nation. So there we had an issue. And and so God raised up these prophets in order to set things right. He raised up prophets in order to speak into the life of the king and into the life of leadership and into the lives of the people so that there would be a voice that could be heard. Because I mean, if you're, you're in a time when, say, David was king... Well, there was, even though David was flawed and he had his issues, but he had a heart for God. And he was a man after God's own heart. And so it was easy and, and it was something that God was easily able to do is to rule the nation through him. And he did. And the nation prospered under him, even under his son Solomon, that was open and ready to receive, even though he was flawed, and even though he had his problems, but he still had a heart to allow God to rule. He still had a heart to be sensitive to God most of the time that he was king. And so again, the nation prospered. And what you see in the life of Israel is you see there are those times where you have a king that has a heart after God and you see the nation prospering. And then many, many times 
where the king was selfish or the king was all about his own business or all about his own power or all about his own riches, and there would be those times where the nation would fall into ruin. So, prophets had a role to play, and it was a God-given role to play in the life of the nation. And so, here we have the company of the prophets. Literally, that word there isn't really a, a company or a school. Literally, it's the sons of the prophets. But that doesn't mean that they were literally their sons. In other words, Elijah and Elisha, it doesn't mean they were actually their physical children. Uh, that, that word is used through the Old Testament, and it was uh, something that was used, and it literally means a disciple. And so these were disciples of the prophets. So reoccurring in the history of Elijah and Elisha, but you go back and you can see it like going back all the way to Samuel. Uh, if you look at, somebody look this up just so we get a kind of context to this. First Samuel 10.5. Now Samuel was a prophet. And he, he was the de facto ruler of Israel. And he anointed a king because that's what the people wanted. He anointed Saul as king, but he was the de facto ruler over the country as a prophet. So, First uh, Samuel 10.5. After that, you shall come to Gibeth Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come into the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Yeah. So, so even during the time of Samuel, I mean, there were these companies of prophets, there were these schools, these sons of the prophets that were just engaged in the life of the nation. Read verse 10, same chapter, 1 Samuel 10, 10. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. Right. 1 Samuel nineteen twenty. So again, I'm just giving some context to how far back this was going here. 1 Samuel 19, 20. So he sent men to capture him, but when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel, standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Yeah. And so each of these verses, they, they show the influence that these schools or the sons of the prophets had over leadership. I mean, Saul came into contact with them and he began to prophesy. Or Saul's men that they were he was sending out in order to capture and, and to do his bidding. But they got into and they got around the school of the prophets and they began to prophesy. And so the influence that they had was very spiritual, but it affected things that were very physical. It affected and influenced the things that were happening in the life of the king and the will of the king and in what he was doing. And so they were an important safeguard in the life of Israel so that God continued to have a voice into the people. He continued to have a voice in the life of the king. He continued to have a voice in the life of leadership and things could be affected and changed through that voice. Now, what's important about that to us is that this is how God raised things up from the start. Right? This is how God wanted things. And He made provision when the people cried out and they said, we want a king. Well, it wasn't God's intent that they have a king. Like, not like the way they did. But they wanted to be like other nations. They wanted to be like other people. They wanted to be 
by people that were around them, and so they were demanding a king. They had been ruled by judges up until that point, or through Moses, who was a prophet. And and then you go in, in, into that whole history after Moses and then Joshua, and then you go and you see the judges being raised up after that. And and so that was how God chose to do things. But the people, they, they wanted something else. They they saw something else, said, I want to be more like that. And uh, as flawed as that is, God made provision for it. He's like, all right, well, uh, he sent the prophet to anoint Saul to be king. And Saul was anointed king, but he made provision for that. And and then David became king after that, and Solomon became king after him. And then you see the lineage that took place after that. But the whole time, God in his sovereignty and in his wisdom was making provision for that. And And always having a voice, always having influence, always having the ability to change things as he saw fit. And and so there's something really powerful about his word. There's something about powerful about the prophetic word. There's something really powerful about the voice of the prophet. There's something really powerful about uh, things that God's doing. And if you follow this, and I don't know how many people here would do that, but there are modern-day prophets. There are people... Oops, there are people that continue to prophesy and continue to have influence into the lives of people of power, whether they be leaders in business, they be uh, leaders in industry, or whether they be political. Uh, there are people that do have voices like that even now, people that have prophesied certain things that have come to pass. Uh, they prophesied years before, and they come to pass. And kind of interesting, if you ever get a chance to and I, I don't have enough time or energy to tell you all the people out there that are prophesying. But And that's something that if you're really interested in it, you can kind of look that up and see for yourself. There's a lot of quacks and weirdos out there too. But there's a lot of people that are actually hearing from God and they're actually speaking God's Word and actually speaking into and, and speaking for and, and really influencing things that God wants influenced. And so... Just to me, uh, the more thing you think about things being, oh, it's so different now. Well, a lot of things are still the same. God still has a voice. God still has influence. God still has something to say. And it doesn't depend on, say, who's, you know, who, who's in charge. It, that's not what it depends on. It's that God's going to have a voice and he's going to have an influence because that's what he chooses to do. And so the voice of the prophet is still an important part of that influence, still an important part of that leading. So the other thing I'd point out about this kind of interestingly is that prophets uh, weren't chosen uh, through uh, heredity. In other words, like the priests, uh, the priests were. You had to be the son of a priest to be a priest. You had to be the son of a Levite to be a Levite. I mean, those things were chosen through their heredity, in other words, their genealogy. So you either were born into it or you weren't. And the same is true with the kings. The kings were born into it or they weren't, for the most part. There might have been one exception to that, two exceptions to that, but for the most part, you're a king, you have sons, one of your sons becomes king. You know the story? You watch the you know TV, right? You understand how it goes? All right. So, so that, that's just how it happens most of the time. 
And so both of those positions that we talk about, you got the, the spiritual side of the priest and the kind of religious side of things, and then you've got the political side of things and the rulership side of things through the king, but then you've got the voice of God through the prophet. And the prophet's the one of those three that has nothing to do with who your daddy is. Has nothing to do with who your mom is. Has nothing to do with who anybody is. I mean, when Elijah went and he was choosing a pred- somebody that would come after him, he was choosing the guy that, that would be uh, the next prophet in line, he, he went and he chose a guy that wasn't even in the school of the prophets. I mean, Elisha wasn't even part of the school of prophets. He wasn't one of the sons of the prophets. He wasn't a disciple of a prophet. He was plowing a field, and we talked about this, that he was just going about his life and going about his business, and Elijah came, and he chose him. Because that was direction of God, and that's what God had. And so, one thing about the prophets is that it's not stale like that. It's not like, oh, well, my daddy was this, my, you know, my daddy was a Levite, his daddy was a Levite, they're all Levites, I'm a Levite. And my daddy was a priest, and his daddy was a priest, and so I'm a priest, because we're all priests. Well, prophets are a little more dynamic than that. They're a little more dynamic in that each person is going to stand as to who they are. And in that sense, the prophets are a little more like it is to be a Christian. The prophets are a little bit more like it is to to be a believer. That we're not born into Christianity. You know, we're not Christians because our parents were Christians. We're not Christians because somebody in our lineage before that came before us was a Christian. That's just not how it works. And in other religions, they are like that. You, you, you're born into it. You're, you're whatever you are because that, the person that came before you was that. But Christianity is not like that. You have to stand. I have to stand. We all have to make our decisions on our own. And, and as individuals, that it's a dynamic relationship, an individual relationship that God has with us. And it doesn't have anything to do with our daddy or our mom or anything else. It has to do with who we are and what God is speaking to us and, and how God has for us. I, I mean, I, I look at my own situation. My, I had no reason to be a Christian based on my, my father and my mother. They thought I was crazy. When I, when I became a Christian, when I found Jesus, or Jesus found me, or however you want to think about it, when I was in college. But I made a decision for Christ, and I started living for Christ in college, and they thought I was nuts. Well, alright. It wasn't their choice, it was mine. It wasn't, it wasn't that it got passed down to me, because it didn't. But it was something happened in me, and it had to happen in me. Or it really doesn't mean much. When I worked on, at college campuses, and I would see, you know, I get, every year, every year, I would get churches contacting me. Oh, I got, you know, my best uh, youth group leader coming to campus this year. I was at SU or I was at Cornell or wherever I was as a chaplain. I got my best kid coming to you. You know, take good care of him. All right. So, I mean, I'd contact them, try to contact them. If they showed up to one meeting, that was a miracle. But as soon as they got to wherever they were going, man, they were gone. Because their faith wasn't theirs. Their faith didn't belong to them. They didn't own it. It wasn't something that they 
looked at and they said, oh yeah, this is mine. I mean, it might have been the faith of their parents. It might have been the faith of their, whoever it was, their youth pastor or their youth group or whatever it was. It could have been all of those things. But the bottom line is, is that they saw at some point had to own that. They had to own their faith. They had to own their experience with God. They had to have that in order for it to mean anything. Because, I mean, of all places, if you're going to live for Jesus on a college campus, you better own your faith. If you're going to live in those dorms, you're going to be surrounded by that 24-7, and you're going to be bombarded with the teaching that's being taught on these campuses, you better own your faith. You better. Because if it was somebody else's, it ain't going to last very long. If your conviction is somebody else's conviction, it's not going to last very long. So what I'd see happen year in and year out is that I get all of these phone calls, I get somebody emailing me or whatever it be, and rarely, rarely did it ever work out to anything. And it wasn't because I wasn't trying. It was because I... I can't make somebody own their faith. I can't make somebody have a relationship with Jesus. I can't make somebody take hold of what it is to know God. They have to do that themselves. And so in that sense, we're directly related to the prophets. These sons of prophets that were raised up during these times and during the times of the, the king, and that were related to them in this fact that what we believe and who we are in our faith isn't passed down to us, but it's a dynamic between us and God, just like it was with them. And so what you see here happening is that a message came to one of the prophets from the Lord, and it was God's express command. And one thing I'll tell you, and I say this a lot, and you, those of you who've been around for a little while, you know I say this a lot, and I really believe this, but God's express command, God has an expectation of obedience over our lives. And we don't like that. We don't like that. We just want to do what we want to do. But He has an expectation of obedience over our lives that when He gives an express command, in other words, He speaks something, and we hear him speak it, he has an expectation that we're going to do it. And so I'm not going to try to sugarcoat that. I'm not going to try to say, oh, you know, it's okay. Because it's not. It's not okay when I disobey God. I'm, I'm talking about me. I'm not going to get anybody upset. <laughs> it's not okay. And it happens. It happens sometimes. Where... Where God will speak to me, He'll say something, and I just don't want to do it. And so I'll fight Him. And you know I'm going to lose, but I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot, and you know what? It's not okay. It's not okay to hear what God says and just not do it. It's not okay to hear what God says and ignore it. It's not okay for me to hear what God says and go and do something else. It's not. And so I, I'm... I don't want to excuse that. I don't. I, I'm, not, I'm not denying it doesn't happen because it does. But I don't want to excuse it. And those are two different things. It's one thing for me to say, yeah, it does happen and 
And, and that's just the fact of the matter that sometimes I'm in disobedience. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But what I want to say is this. I don't want to excuse that in my life. And I don't want to develop a pattern of excusing disobedience and rebellion in my life. And so I'd rather make a hard statement about it. And I'd rather say something that's you know, just straight up. This is what God says. This is what His expectations are over our life. And to make a statement about it like that so as not to excuse it. But to understand that I'm never going to live perfectly either. And that's not an excuse. It's just the way it is. And so there's always this tension going on. And I don't mean tension in a bad way. I mean tension in a, in a good way. Because sometimes tension is good. And so there's this tension that is in me that I hear what God says, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Oh, I don't want to do that. I want that to create a tension in me. I want that tension to be in me that I, oh, I don't want to do that. That should cause a tension. It should cause me to think about that again. It should cause me to reconsider my decision. It should cause me to wonder, oh, all right, well, all right, so... I need to reconsider what I just said. And let that tension exist. See, the problem that we face as believers, I mean, we live in an age of grace and mercy and forgiveness. All those things are true. But we can't allow ourselves living in this age of grace and mercy and forgiveness, this age of love that we live in, we can't allow ourselves to just excuse, explain away, and ignore abject disobedience in our lives. Just can't. And so God in His grace gave us each other. And so in that grace, we might say to one another, hey, didn't you tell me God said you're supposed to do something? I might not remember what it is, but I remember you told me He said that. And so if I remember that and you ain't doing it, well, I might ask you about it. Don't get mad. Don't get upset. Because maybe it's something that you need to reconsider. And if and if you've already excused it away, and you've already ignored it, and somebody brings it up again, good. Good. Because I'll tell you what, man, you excuse it stuff enough, and you ignore things long enough, you become hardened to it, and you get what you get. All right, as far as the church is concerned, church all of a sudden becomes a a social organization instead of a spiritual dynamic for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. The church becomes something that it's not even supposed to be instead of a miracle-working, miracle-working, gospel-preaching entity, body, living body. Most of what the church has become these days is because the church has lost its identity in Christ. Because long ago they made an excuse not to obey. Long ago they were worried about what people thought. Long ago they were too concerned about it. And so they just stopped doing certain things. Stopped hearing and, and, and acting on what God says. They just started ignoring it. That can happen in the body and that can happen to us as individuals. And I want to encourage you away from that. That when God gives us an express command, 
He has an expectation of obedience. Now, when this prophet received this word, which was an express command, he said that he went to his companion, or some of your Bibles says his neighbor, but the, the word literally means a guy from the same school he was in, another son of the prophet. So, in other words, he was another person. And, and don't get the idea that these guys were young, because when we talk about school, we think of, oh, well, he must have been a teenager or in his 20s. Now, some of these guys were really old. Some of these guys had wives and kids and were living their lives out, and, you know, they were older. And so he just came to his companion, whoever his companion was, then he was propped from the same school. And, and understand that that other guy that he went to, all right, with this express word of God, he fully understood the, the importance of obedience. Fully understood it. Fully. And so it was one guy that understood obedience talking to another guy who understood obedience. It was one guy who was obeying the express word of God speaking to a guy that understood, fully understood the importance of obeying the express word of God. So these are two guys on the same page. These are two guys with the same uh, education and experience. These are two guys with the same gifts. These are two guys that were being used by God as prophets. And so the one came to the other and he he said this to me. He says, strike me down. Interestingly, with your weapon. Prophets were armed, I guess. He says, strike me down with your weapon. And in verse 37, if you go down there, it was not to kill him, it was to wound him. Verse 37 makes that clear. That it was to wound him. So strike me down with this, with your weapon, to wound me. And the Bible tells us that the guy refused. The other prophet that he spoke to just refused to do it. He's like, no, I will not. Now, he knew it was the express command of God. The other prophet was more than willing, the one that would be injured, was more than willing to allow himself to be struck down by this guy. He came to him and he requested that he do it at the express word of God. And the guy looked at him knowing all of those things and said, no, he refused. And I don't believe it was out of contempt for God's command. I don't believe that. What I believe, it was likely out of a tenderness for his brother. Now you're going to say to me, yeah, but isn't that a good thing? Yeah, sure. Mostly. And yeah, I mean, you see, here's the, here's the issue. This is the real issue. That God spoke something. It was express command. And instead of just hearing what he said and doing it, he had to make a moral judgment on it. And the moral judgment was this. Oh, that's going to hurt him a lot. I can't do that. And I'm not saying it's not good to be kind. It's good to be kind. It's good to be nice to people around you. I have a t-shirt that says, be nice. <laughs> I think it's good. And I, and I believe it's good. But not when it's in direct, direct contradiction to what God says. 
story I go back to all the time is Abraham and Isaac. Because there's a clear moral issue with that. Where Abraham, God spoke to Abraham, he says, I want you to take your son up onto a mountain, I want you to plunge a knife into his chest and kill him and sacrifice him to me. A son he had waited uh, so long for, a son that was miraculous, a son that he was a hundred years old, waiting, 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 his wife, waiting, waiting, waiting. Finally, God gives him a son, and God says, I'll take him up on the mountain, sacrifice him. There's a clear moral problem with that. And yet, there's also an express command involved in that. And so, Abraham obeys the express command, takes him up onto the mountain. And as he was going to sacrifice his son, God stops him and gives him a, a ram to replace his son, has him sacrifice the ram instead. But Abraham was fully going to do it. That faith that he showed that day, notwithstanding, God's mercy is God's mercy, but that faith he showed that day changed the world. It changed the world in the sense that God chose a people from him. It changed the world in the sense that he provided a seed through him that would become Jesus Christ and that would literally change the world. But it was a result of his faith. Abraham was not necessarily a righteous man. But his faith, according to the Bible, was counted toward him as righteousness. Powerful. Powerful. And, and that was another issue, a clear moral issue that was involved in that. But we're not really good with moral issues. We're good with moral issues when they are convenient. And we're good with moral issues when they make us feel better. And we're good with moral issues when it's easier to do that than it is to do something else. But otherwise, we're just not really good at it. Because, I mean, you think about it, it's like, you know, oh yeah, truth is important, that's a moral issue. Right, it is. But there are times in our life where it's easier for us to keep our mouth shut, isn't it? Then you know what I mean by that. It's like there's somebody talking or there's something going on and we know what the answer is and we just keep our mouth shut. Instead of speaking it out, instead of speaking the truth, we just withhold it. Well, there's a moral issue, but it's inconvenient. It's a moral issue, but we're afraid. There's a moral issue, but it's not expedient to our advancement to say anything. And so we don't... We don't... Somebody gets the wrong idea about something that happened. And instead of correcting it, we just allow them to think that if it's to our advantage. See, we're not really good at this stuff. And, and God knew that from the very beginning. That's why He withheld from us, created us without the knowledge of good and evil. Garden of Eden stuff. Adam and Eve did not have the knowledge of good and evil. They, they spent time with God. They were with Him in His presence. They lived with Him. They heard Him. They, they did what He asked us to do. They took care of the garden. All these things happened. They were living in a paradise. All these things. And then they decided, we want the knowledge of good and evil. They went in direct disobedience to what God told them to do. A of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we've been messed up ever since. And so it hinders us from really just hearing God and doing what He wants us to do. Sometimes. Because there's certain things that it, depending on how you want to look at it, man, you can make a judgment on something, but it'd be the wrong one. Because we're not that good at it. 
or just not that good. And I was watching a Star Trek, the original series, TOS. <laughs> and there was one particular episode where, uh, and I don't believe in time travel, but uh, the doctor travels back in time. And uh, he's not supposed to be there, of course. It's the 1930s he traveled back to. And there was a woman that ran a rescue mission down New York City, 21st Street Mission. And this isn't a true story, by the way. This is Star Trek. But he, uh, so he is, they take him in. He's all messed up in the head for some reason. and Whatever, it doesn't matter. And they, they clean him up. And the woman who runs the mission, he, he liked her a lot. And so she um, she's walking across the street one day, and there's a truck coming at her. He sees it happening, and he dives, and he gets her out of the way, so she lives. And so what happened was because of that, because he shouldn't have been there, she should have been hit by the truck and killed, this goes somewhere. Stick with me a second. <laughs> She lives and starts a pacifist movement in the 1930s in the United States. And what happens is, is that she gets direct influence through her movement over the president of the United States, with the president of the United States, and convinces him to delay the United States' entrance into World War II. So then the result of that is, is that the United States delays entrance into World War II the Germans, Nazis, the Nazis, are enabled to develop the atomic bomb. And they could deliver it with their V-2 rockets, and so they end up winning World War II and taking over the world, which changes history in the sense that in the future, the enterprise ceases to exist. Now, why did I tell you that story? Well, I'm telling you that story because you have a doctor who saves a woman, that'd be the right thing to do, right? No. Because she needed to die. Because she was going to do the right thing, right? With the pacifist movement? Right. But because she had influence in the pacifist movement, it influenced leadership in the country the wrong way, which you would think would be the right way, but it wasn't the right way, and delayed our entrance, and then we ended up all being little Nazis. So it's hard to look at something, each individual circumstance, just say, oh, well, then this is good. Well, maybe it's not. Or this is bad. Well, maybe it's not. Or, or, or whatever it is. And those are the type of dilemmas that arise because we're just not really good at the knowledge of good and evil. But God is. And so as His people... And, and this was the, the nature of the prophet at this time. As his people, same as them, we need to have a direct relationship with our God so that we can hear him. We can receive his direction. We can be led by him. Because he knows the end. He knows the beginning. He understands all of those things. We don't. We know just what's in front of us. And what might seem like the best decision in the moment might be a terrible decision in the long run. Like even Ahab, I mean, Ahab shows mercy to a king. And that could have looked like in the moment the best decision, and yet we know that in the history of Israel it was a terrible decision. 
and would end up costing countless people much because of that one decision. And so it's hard to, to look at these small moments and be able to make that kind of a judgment. So, he refused. And it was the wrong decision. Even though you could look at that and say, well, he was just being nice. Right, he was being nice. But there was something bigger at play. There was a message, there was a word that needed to go forth to the king, Ahab. And this prophet asked this other prophet, strike me with your weapon. He was going to go to the king with a word. And he needed that wound. He needed that. And as he went to to the king with that word, to, to make it something that he would understand. Yeah. And yet this guy hindered that word that would affect the whole nation by doing what he saw as being the good thing. Ended up being not the good thing. So obedience. I'm going to read this to you. It says this. We have no right to be generous at the expense of others. We have no right to be generous at the expense of others. God's will must be done even if it goes against the grain. And and there are times where God's will goes against the grain. There are. And in the madness of our world, there's going to be more and more of those times in the days and the weeks and the months and the years ahead. It's just how it is. And there always has been. But I, I hope you can see somewhat of an acceleration of things. And as things accelerate and they continue to accelerate, God's Word is in, in what He says and in His prophetic Word is just going to go against some of those things. It's going to go against the grain. And so the only thing that we have to counteract, the only thing that we have to stand with, the only thing that we have as any real protection or any real word or any real influence is that we have our obedience. Even if it contradicts, like what happened here, it contradicted kindness. I mean, that was that guy, right? He, he just wanted to be kind to his friend. All right, well, he he's kind to his friend, but there was something bigger at play. There was a whole nation at play. There was a, a, a message, a word that was going to go to the king at play. And because he couldn't look beyond that, and because he couldn't see that, which I wouldn't have any expectation that he would be able to, but you know what he could do? He could obey God's express command. He just refused to. <coughs> Out of his kindness, or however you want to call that. And obedience will demand sacrifice from us if we choose to obey. It just does. What does that mean? That means reputation? I don't know. What does it mean? People be upset with you? Maybe. People won't like you? Maybe. I'm kind of coming to the conclusion people don't like people anyway. <laughs> you know? I mean... You've got people around you that you relationship with and kind of like each other or whatever. That's good. 
But, I mean, there's certain people out there that just, if you don't fully agree with everything that they think, they're just not going to like you. And there's very few people in the world that I fully agree with, if any. And so I have to accept the fact that because I'm going to disagree with certain things that people believe or certain things that people think or certain things that people want to see happen or whatever, i got to come to grips with the fact that some of those people are not big enough people to allow for dissent and allow for other people to not think the same way that they do, and they're just not going to like me. I mean, I'm perfectly fine with them not thinking the way I do. I'm perfectly fine with the people out there that don't see things the way I see them, don't understand things the way I understand them, don't agree with me. They can live their lives. I don't care. But they don't have the right to expect me to agree with everything they think either. And I won't. <coughs> so to refuse, this prophet refusing, and this is where we're going to kind of end things up. He refused. He was at variance with the character of who he was. He was a prophet. And so the prophets understood. I mean, the only way prophecy really works is if you hear God and do what he says. That's how it works. That's what it is. And so he was a prophet. And so the idea behind that was was that, well, he's supposed to hear God and speak it, or he's supposed to hear God and do what God says, or he's supposed to hear God and, and go about it. And, and if God wants to provide a parable or God wants to provide a, an illustration for a king, then it's his job. That's what he does. I mean, uh, the prophet, who was it, Jeremiah, walked around in his underwear for three years? Or two years or something? I mean, seriously? Ezekiel? You know, he camped out, and, and you got, you got like, uh, all these guys that, that did what he, they were doing. I mean, it, they, they provided an illustration. They provided a word. They provided a parable for the king to understand. But that's the nature of being a prophet. But as I've related a few times already, that's the nature of being us. That we're in that place. That it's a dynamic that we live in. That the nature of being who God's called us to be is that we, we have a dynamic with Him. That we provide the illustration. We provide the parable. We provide the communication the way that it needs to be provided for whoever it is that God wants to speak to for them to understand it. If you ever come out on a Saturday for evangelism, we have an expectation every person we meet we're going to have a word for them or some kind of a, some kind of a manifestation of God's Spirit so that they can see, they can hear, they can experience God. Well, that's the nature of who these guys were. So for him to refuse is really weird. And the first prophet made it clear in, in the next verse. He says that the voice of the Lord. So here you have a situation where the only thing I want you to really get out of this, I don't think any lions are waiting outside or anything, so don't, don't worry about that. And that, that's not really the point I'm trying to make here. 
the point I'm trying to make with this is that there needs to be a higher expectation in our life that we're going to hear from God. And as we do hear from God, we need to respond. That instead of ignoring it and instead of excusing it, that we really take hold of what God is saying, we really take hold of His Word in our life and we live it. We live it out. And there needs to be some expectation of that that we carry in us. You know, we, we talk about, oh, I know God. God's in me. He is. You do. Jesus lives in you right now. Shouldn't that really mean something? Shouldn't that affect something in your life? I think it should. I think it should. And I think Jesus in you, and I think the Holy Spirit in you, and I think God speaking to you should trump your ideas. I just do. When the God of the universe has an assignment, I think, I don't know that your approval is required. Your compliance is, but I don't know that your approval is. And what you find in your life is that as you learn to yield to the Holy Spirit and to what God is saying and doing, He'll give you more. And that dynamic between you and Him will grow. And so I, I encourage you toward that because I love that dynamic. And I encourage as many people as I can, as many Christians as I can, toward that dynamic of that kind of a relationship with God. I'm convinced. I'm convinced that God wants to do more in the world that we're living in. I'm convinced that as, as things get crazier, it provides more opportunity for God to speak into people's lives and to do more. I just believe that. And so I believe that God is, for some of us, reminding us of who we are. And for others of us, God is really speaking to who we are so that maybe we can begin to see ourselves differently than we have in the past. Because you ask the question, well, who am I? Well, right. And the real question isn't who you are, it's who He is. And your willingness to allow that to shine through your life. That's the real issue. Let's take a few moments and pray. I just want to just ask God to clarify and to really uh, bring into focus some of the things that were said tonight. And I ask you to allow yourself to maybe be... Um, refocus tonight. Father, thanks for uh, just thanks. Thanks for your desire to work in and through your people. I thank you tonight that you have given us a dynamic in our life that is powerful. That you give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. That's powerful. That you fill us with your Holy Spirit, that, that's powerful too. That we have Jesus in us is powerful. I give you thanks that you have greater things for us than even what we've experienced so far. 
that the real question is where'd we come from or anything else like that those aren't the real questions who am i that's not the question the real question is who in the real understanding of this is who you are in us and our willingness to yield to you in and through our lives what am I willing to sacrifice? What am I willing to experience? What am I willing to see happen? What kind of fear am I willing to walk through? What kind of joy? What kind of peace? What kind of love do I want to be a minister of? So God, I just ask that we would find a place of submission to you. We would find ourselves in that love and that joy and that peace. And that God, we would allow you to speak through us. We would allow you to use our hands to lay on people, to see people heal. That we would allow you, Lord God, to to really use us to, to minister grace into people's lives. And use our mouth to speak truth and life, forgiveness and love. I ask you, God, that we would uh, take hold of the abundance that you have for us and live in that abundance and allow that abundance to flow through us. I pray you begin to open our hearts, begin to open our minds that there's more. Begin to open our hearts and open our minds that there's so much deeper in you. God, we would allow you into the deep parts of us. So speak, God. Use us. I pray we wouldn't be too smart for you. We would be too clever. We wouldn't have it figured out, but I pray, God, that we'd find ourselves in a place of faith and a place of obedience. Give you thanks. Have your way. If we ask you in Jesus' name, let's be by saying amen. Amen. UCF and Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the community dad. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah.